0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup.com groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore and Tokyo. Today we're going to speak with a very special guest. Sarah Spencer is joining us from Amman, Jordan. We're very excited and thrilled to have you with us. I understand you are an independent consultant, but you come from Divid, the UK Department for International Development. You've been to some of the most interesting places on earth, and there's lots of questions. So welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Brent and I were chatting about your background, and we're so blown away. Your generation is similar to Brent's really, and mine, in terms of having been immersed in lots of different wars and conflicts. And what would you like to share from your background from a humanitarian angle? Shall we start with your story? We'll tease out all the different questions that you've been chewing over recently. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm a DFID civil servant, and
1: I've worked for DFID for the last eight years now working specifically on social development and conflict-related programming. I should just say that whilst I'm here, the views and opinions and perspectives that I'm representing are solely my own and don't represent the views or policies of the UK government or of DFID. So when I was at university, a long time ago now, I was studying the history of World War Two as well as Eastern European politics. And that just so happened to coincide with The increase in conflict in the Balkans and Kosovo specifically. And it was sort of fortune a bit that my interest in historical conflict coincided with some opportunities to work on existing current conflict. And I started out working for a very small advocacy organization called the Women's Refugee Commission but was known then as the Women's Commission for Refugee Women and Children, which was an independent affiliate in those days with the International Rescue Committee and did some really interesting advocacy work to the global aid community as well as the Security Council and UN bodies to improve protection and assistance for women and children in display settings and in emergencies around the globe. And I think that was a really interesting place to be right out of university because it gave me sight as to the international policymaking fora that exist, the limitations of the Security Council, as well as some of its benefits. You know, we were talking in sort of post-Cold War 90s heyday of when the Security Council probably had some of arguably some of the greatest strengths it's ever had in history. So it was great to be part of that. And I have made a lot of very close friends and colleagues during that time. And then from there went to West Africa and was posted was in Sierra Leone for about a year and a half before going to graduate school. And then from there I worked for UNICEF and the International Rescue Committee and some short term assignments with other UN agencies and NGOs, really looking at the provision of life saving support and services, particularly to women and to children and most specifically on gender based violence and emergencies. When I started working, really my first job in 2000, the idea of addressing reproductive health in emergencies was still a sort of new idea. And it sounds absurd. Now to talk about that, or it makes me really old, but I can think of these remarkable women I was lucky enough to work with, and next to at the Women's Commission and at IRC, who were really championing some of this work and in the early days, gender based violence in emergencies really strictly seen as a public health issue. And to the extent that aid organizations themselves, very few of them had dedicated gender based violence teams, but most of them, if they had them, most of them were placed within a reproductive health team or within the broader health units. And that's just not where we are today. So that's great. That's moved on. The understanding of the sort of needs of women and children, and specifically the needs of girls within that has improved. But I think where we're still lacking is a couple of areas. The first is that the tools that we're using tend to be the same ones that we've used in previous scenarios. They get a bit of an update from time to time. Sometimes there'll be a complete changing of the guard and a new system is rolled out and a new way of doing things is rolled out. But I do think we haven't accelerated at the same pace or in the same way as other social service providers might have done in other low income or middle income countries not experiencing conflict. And I think ultimately, if we start coming to grips with the capability and the power of emerging technologies, and specifically my interest is in specifically machine learning algorithms, to do more of the analysis, to find more of the patterns, to provide a better quality of care and deliver better outcomes for people who need it, now is the time to do that, um, certainly in sort of a post-COVID reality or a current in, within the COVID situation that we're all in. This is definitely the time to reap those those benefits and frankly do more and to hold ourselves to account for delivering high standards and high quality outcomes for the communities that are affected by conflict and natural disasters.
0: There's a huge movement in tech for good. Are you not seeing any of that or what's trickling down to what you've experienced in, in different contexts?
1: Yeah, so I think the way in which emerging or frontier technologies are applied to humanitarian context is, and maybe forever will be, piecemeal. What I've seen so far to date, most recently, on AI and machine learning is interesting and largely being generated by people, academics. You know, computer scientists and data scientists who are incredibly clever and able to do things that I will never be able to do in my life, but equally haven't necessarily been to the front line of service delivery. And I think what's missing from this conversation are people who are at the vanguard of service delivery. And I'm talking about the people from where the aid leaves (laughs) the organization into the hands of the recipient and the client, the beneficiary. That connection is the point of service that I'm really interested in. And I use those terms broadly. I don't mean, you know, specific type of service. I just mean generally uh, the distrib- distribution of aid. What I've seen is really good so far. There's a lot of investment in predictive analytics. USAID is doing some work on algorithms, part of their atrocity prevention work. Um, I've seen some really clever stuff around mapping that was obviously brought around or came to it sort of the fore during the Haiti earthquake and using really clever bits of software from Google and others to help us better map and identify places. Now, that's great for a situation like Haiti. I remember landing and I was deployed to Haiti from Eastern Congo, actually, from a different emergency into a different one. And the challenge there was not only that it was urban and a lot of us were not really used to urban disasters and disaster response in urban areas. But there was a lot of complexity in Haiti. You know, you're talking about ultimately a development setting, not a conflict-affected one. It was a natural disaster. It was urban. There was a functioning state. There was state architecture in place that we needed to account for. There were UN bodies in place that were accustomed to working on development agendas at the pace and with the tools that they were accustomed to, which is very different than the way in which humanitarian actors respond. But also the geographic proximity to the United States meant that there were a lot of American volunteers who turned up, who were unaware of the norms and the principles and the coordinating mechanisms and the ways of working that humanitarian agencies were accustomed to. And I remember going to maybe a shelter meeting or a water and sanitation meeting where there were 400 people in that tent. And, you know, you had U.S. armed forces there who were trying to understand humanitarian architecture. And, you know, in some cases, the emergence of mapping tools that could be updated and further developed and refined by the end users themselves, by aid agencies themselves, were brilliant tools. I mean, thank goodness that happened. And thank goodness we have those tools. What I'm having a hard time finding is use cases, specific use cases to improve the delivery of services, broadly speaking. So there are, for example, I know that, you know, one of the big U.S. tech companies right now has worked together with social services in the state of California to improve social work, and social services, and the outcomes for vulnerable clients in the state of California. Now, of course, that operating environment is different than, say, Eastern Congo. But the infrastructure is arguably similar in some places. And those tools, those off-the-shelf tools, can be adapted and co-designed and co-created with tech industry leaders and humanitarian service organizations to really try and identify how we make these fit for purpose. There are generally four categories of obstacles when we think about ways to apply machine learning to humanitarian assistance. One is ethics and regulation and laws. The second is corporate culture and business models, business environment. The third one is capabilities. And the fourth is access to capital and funding. Now, the access to capital and funding has its constraints and is a challenge in and of itself, but it's more easy to solve, I think than the ethics and regulation one and the corporate culture and business model one. I don't think this is a question about capability anymore. I think there's been a lot of clever brains coming around the tables, either within tech companies, but also at various hackathons and at lots of different events to try and get clever people around the table to design new tools, new capabilities, new algorithms. We've got a lot of that on the table, but I think A lot of the work that needs to be done now is probably less sexy than designing a new algorithm. I think it's down to working with existing aid industry leaders to think about the ways in which their organizations probably need to adapt and evolve to take on board some of these new technological capabilities. And, you know, the first question is if they do want to do that, right? And that is going to be very hard work. And it's going to take a lot of effort and trying to change the way in which organizations and a whole industry behaves will take a lot of hard work and dedication and commitment. I think the current model or the current structure of aid organizations as we know them will change because that's the nature of human existence. And none of the institutions that we work with or work in are the same as they were 50 years ago. What that means for the emergence of data scientists or AI experts within humanitarian organizations, it's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. I think making sure you're placing this expertise in the hands of people who have technical skill sets related to specific areas of humanitarian aid is critical. So anything related to data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence can't sit in its own bubble within an organization. It has to be fully integrated across the organization. It's a mistake to park this with innovation teams. It's a mistake to park it with an IT team. It has to be co-led or co-owned by a child protection unit or by a camp management team leader or you know someone working on shelter and non-food items. I mean, there has to be the people who are designing the interventions today to meet the needs of people who right now are living in a humanitarian emergency or humanitarian crisis, you need to be able to put this technology into the hands of those technical specialists rather than having it sit off to the side in a way that's not fully integrated across the organization. Now how you get there and what that final model looks like, I don't know, but this is why I'm saying in the you know these baskets of four challenges, I think, the, the sort of corporate culture and the business ecology right now around humanitarian aid is probably the most tricky and also probably the most contentious because what you're talking about in some ways is unpacking what some organizations will see as their competitive advantage and the way in which they've structured themselves of helped them to build up a strong reputation deliver successful programs build up good relationships with donors and you know both governments and foundations and I think, that kind of change management process will take really careful thinking. Um, I think the fact that much of the work related to AI and machine learning is unhelpfully parked within innovation units and or the IT departments when that should be in the hands of technical units, people who are the experts in the delivery of specific services like camp management or child protection or education or gender-based violence. Those are where the experts sit who know the challenges of designing a program to reach the most vulnerable and to overcome some of the security and ethical challenges of delivering aid in hostile
0: environments. So much there. Just going back to what you mentioned, it seems like the starting point for tech for good. Um, you mentioned Haiti, and um, I think we talked recently to Laura McDonald, who. Yeah, that was an awesome interview. Yeah, she talked about SimLab, and um, it'd be great to get you two on together and, and just bounce off each other. Um, yeah. But, you know, from the late 1990s, it was email, 2000s internet con- connectivity, and satellite phones, um, and just like taking a peek into the horizon tomorrow. You mentioned that the humanitarian kind of actors are a little bit nervous and, you know, the COVID-19 sort of global pandemic has risen to this accelerated, some call it digital Trojan horse, but it is an opportunity to scale up. And what do you think could be a roadmap? Do you want to give some specific examples and context to the community that designs and creates um, a lot of these algorithms that listen to us and probably want to help. Um, and they they do, they do reach out, what could you ask them to do? And um, how could yeah. we demystify the areas that people are maybe a little bit concerned about and how can we help? Yeah, I think it's a really good question.
1: I think the first thing to say is We need to explore use cases from middle-income or high-income countries and think about if and how these can be adapted to low-resource settings or non-permissive or hostile environments. And the way to think creatively about the use cases in, for example, middle-income countries or middle-income operating environments is to understand from a very supra-strategic level what humanitarian aid is all about. And effectively, at its simplest terms, this is about providing life-saving assistance and services where the state is unwilling or incapable of providing them. That's the way to think about it. So start thinking about, you know, looking at examples of how artificial intelligence and machine learning has been used to improve outcomes in social work? How has it been used to improve outcomes in education in potentially low resource settings? How has it been used to improve health outcomes in low resource settings? That is where AI and the applications of AI are accelerating at enormous speed. But I just want to tag on to something that Laura Walker-McDonald talked about, or maybe it was Kate Dodson about making sure we're being clear about what question we're trying to answer. And the most important thing is that we're not trying to find a role for machine learning or AI. We're trying to improve the accuracy and the efficiency of our operations to ideally do more with less. And the technological resources we can bring to bear on this issue are cheaper, are more accessible, are faster, are more secure, and are instantly scalable. And the need is growing right the global economy today the Washington Post was reporting the global economy is expected to contract by close to 5% this year. That means that state contributions to official development assistance. State contributions like from the United Kingdom will likely decrease. That also means that low and middle income countries may find it increasingly difficult to support their citizens. You know, put COVID response on top of that, put climate change on top of that and existing or future natural disasters and conflict and insecurity. We are looking at huge enormous needs resources that are at best static or diminishing so we need to apply these tools but we need to look at how to improve the delivery of specific services and to deliver them more accurately. I've seen some really good mapping tools, some very good assessment tools being generated, some really good predictive analytical tools, but that's all in the first couple of stages. If you were to map out what humanitarian response looks like, sort of on the far left, you looked at preparing yourself and sort of predicting with a small p, trying to anticipate where need will be, and then you have an event post-event, you're looking at doing a rapid assessment, a rapid needs assessment, which in many, in many cases, you're using a, a huge range of sources to help generate a common view across a humanitarian agency about what the need is, where we should go, and whom we should help. Now, computers are really good at analyzing large sources of information and vast sets of data And that's where we should be putting the computers and moving the humans towards the latter end of the decision-making cycle to say, okay, the computer has given me this kind of analysis. The algorithm has given me this kind of analysis. What should we do on the basis of that analysis? How do we use that analysis to complement our own real-world, firsthand observational experience in a conflict or emergency? So it would be a bit like, you know, the sort of assessment stage should be a bit like, getting your back brief in your hand, and then arriving at a in a community that is affected by an event, natural disaster or otherwise, conflict, small scale, large scale, and saying, how does that analysis square with what I'm seeing here? And what does that mean that we should be doing in response? There's no reason we can't imagine a scenario in the future where we have predictive analytics built into our supply chain management and our warehouse management, such that the time that humanitarian goods and relief goods sit on a shelf is reduced to days. Um, I know some of this is already taking place. I know there are big scale operations with several UN agencies to use a machine learning algorithms to better identify and predict crises and therefore better manage that supply chain. But that those are things that could be rolled out across the whole in- industry and hopefully will be.
0: Yeah. No, that reminds me of the way Amazon works. And, and I wonder if there's an opportunity to really get help from what they're doing with them. Um, does that make sense? Is that- it does. So there's a couple of <laughs> things to say in that. The first thing
1: is to say... I think we need to think carefully about our relationships with some of the big technology players, and specifically their own ethical principles and the way in which they are collecting the data of their customers and how that's being used. Some of them have far more advanced, robust ethical commitments and principles, and some are a little less scrupulous. And those are deserving of a bit of exploration.
0: I don't. I don't. Yeah, that's a good word, that. exploration. So we avoid exploitation. So that kind of um, yeah, just going into it with that view is crucial. It's critical and and ethical. Absolutely. So I think there is a role for the leaders in the tech
1: industry to play in the application of machine learning and and AI more broadly. In the assessment of need and the delivery of service. I think those relationships have to be led by the humanitarian organization. I think they can't necessarily be driven by the tech, tech industry. There is a question of cost and how, uh, you know, even if some come, some of that support is given pro bono, what are the costs in the long run of maintaining those systems? and who covers those and do NGOs themselves or UN agencies have the capability to continue the capabilities developed with those tech leaders. I think the other critical question, which was touched on, I suppose, in your uh, interview with Rob and Kate as well, is, is to really think about the ethics of some of these organizations. And you know, whilst you can't necessarily get tech leaders themselves to sign up to humanitarian principles and, and ethics, or maybe you can, but whilst they themselves aren't necessarily obliged to follow humanitarian ethics and principles, you can certainly construct your contractual relationships with those enterprises in a way that is consistent with our humanitarian ethics and principles. And that requires some clever and very skilled negotiations, I suppose, with those industries, knowing what to ask for, how much to pay, and how to structure those agreements will be really critical. But there is a role for them to play. And there are some critical ethical questions that these organizations should be thinking about which big tech leaders they'd like to partner with, and which ones maybe they wouldn't like to partner with, and making some concrete decisions about that. And then also being ultimately very choosy. There are the obvious ones that we can all think about who sort of dominate the tech industry, but there are ones that maybe not so big or ones that are sort of less edgy um, and who would have an ability to support the effective delivery of humanitarian aid. And I think certainly given the way that 2020 is shaping it to be, I think a lot of tech industry leaders might be interested to figure out a way to improve at the very least their public image and um, ideally sort of their corporate social responsibility portfolio a little bit more.
0: So Sarah, you mentioned the need to improve relationships between humanitarian organizations and tech companies and to bring these relationships down to a lower level to facilitate this. Should every large humanitarian organization have an AI officer and what should that role be?
1: So this is a really
0: good question
1: and there isn't an answer to this yet. I'm not sure at what stage aid organizations are currently at with regards to their current business models and organizational structures. There's one model where most of the AI capability gets farmed out to an external organization like a tech leader, who provides that at cost or at reduced cost as part of their corporate social responsibility platforms to um, x aid organization. And that might be fine. If every organization does that, does that pose challenges to our humanitarian ethics and principles? Arguably, yes. Arguably, if most of these tech, big tech firms or even medium-sized small tech firms are starting to control or store or manage, otherwise manage the data that's related to humanitarian organizations, how can we ensure that they abide by the same principles and ethics that humanitarian organizations are expected to abide by? The other consideration is, you know, the intellectual property rights for developing new capabilities. So I was speaking to another organization quite recently about a very interesting tool they're developing And I asked explicitly about IP and legal rights, particularly since the development of the tool is, not being developed within the organization as it were and I think those are issues that we still haven't really been able to bottom out to be honest very
0: timely we've started a series that explores IP and and humanitarian AI and we recently spoke to somebody who demystified what it is to software and IP it's very clear what intellectual property is to software yeah but not so much to data yeah yeah a mathematical sort of what that means the, the humanitarian space do we need more use case projects or do we need more relationships is that something humanitarian organizations can publish and give access to ai developers Will that fall into the open data sort of space there's a couple of things to say about that
1: the first thing is that I don't think humanitarian organizations are consistent or uniform in their approach to sharing details about their programs and their projects and the way that their services are delivered. The environment itself is not necessarily predisposed to cooperation or open and transparent cooperation. That's not to say it doesn't happen, certainly but it doesn't necessarily happen as systematically or as effectively as it could happen. So that's a long way of saying, I think the design and the co-creation needs to sit with the service provider. So what needs to happen is we need to bring the service providers to the party. They need to have this revelatory moment to understand the power of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I'll tell you that, so that's gonna be a long battle, but it's a worthwhile one. So I don't think this is about trying to find clever data scientists to create new algorithms and to demonstrate those capabilities as much as it is to speak to the majority of humanitarian aid organizations delivering 80, 90% of the billions of dollars of humanitarian aid every year and getting them around the table to say, how do we really, really start to pilot some clever initiatives that can be brought to scale quickly? Because I've seen the inverse happening. I've seen some really notable and significant work happening at the strategic policy level around ethics, around regulation, um, around some, some work around funding and how to improve access to funding. UNICEF has an innovation fund where they provide seed funding for startups to develop new capabilities related to technology and accelerating the SDGs. But I haven't seen anything happening at the sort of individual point of service delivery. And that's where we need to have people who understand what those services look like in and out and bringing them together with technology experts who can use the right language, who can build a system of trust, who can agree to co-create, to co-design human-centered, technologically fueled pilot projects to test whether or not we can try to marginally improve the efficiency of our service delivery. And I think we can, it's just a lot of relationship building. It's a lot of bridge building. You know, those are the words that lots of people are using these days, but that's very true for these industries. And there's a way to go. In some respects, you could argue that, you know, this technological tidal wave is the tidal wave that humanitarian aid organizations are the least prepared to address in some ways, but it will happen. And I think, Getting back to your point about organizational structures and what that looks like, do you have an AI specialist? You know, right now, aid organizations, for the most part, lots of them, have an innovation unit. They will have a monitoring and evaluation team whose job is to sort of measure the impact of their work and to collect data on their projects. You know, how many things were delivered? How many things were built? Did it change the health and well-being of the communities in which they're working working? And then they have an IT department. And, you know, there's an argument that those units are either merged or are slightly diminished over the next decade. And that gets replaced by a team of data scientists who are able to work within the confines of an organization to help manage the data in which that organization produces through the delivery of their services and to help that organization use that data to deliver better outcomes. I mean, that is just sort of, in some ways, it's business 101, right? That's the first thing you learn in business school. It's it's business intelligence. And we're not really doing that. I mean, that information that's collected sometimes is... You know, collected on one Excel spreadsheet, or it's not being uploaded in another way. And it's siloed within the agencies, Mm. as much as it's siloed across the agencies Mm. and across the community. So there's a lot of
0: work that needs to be done internally. So you've talked about the four big obstacles, uh, preventing the application of AI to humanitarian work. There's the fifth one that you're just touching on that that cuts across all of those um, access um, and availability of data. What would be the call to action if we could sort of, you know, reach out to corporations? What would we ask them to do? This is, again, not very sexy. You know, it's not
1: it doesn't feel like a hackathon where you can design a very clever algorithm. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, if I were the CEO or the president of an international NGO, I'd be asking some really tough questions to my team to understand the state of our data and the data that our programs generate. There is a lot of data that's generated purely on the basis of delivering humanitarian assistance. And it's a safe bet to say that that data isn't necessarily being managed or organized in the most effective way that can then be fed back into the organization to help identify ways to improve service delivery and therefore outcomes for the most vulnerable or as a way to develop better strategy, long-term strategy, and identify new ways of working. And I think that sort of, in some ways, feels a bit like data management or data science 101. You know, 80% of the effort is about getting the data in the right source. I think part of the challenge with humanitarian aid operations have been The discussions, the interagency negotiations and discussions about how to share information between agencies, how to share it up with coordinating bodies who are UN agencies. But there's very little discussion of how we do more with the data that we produce and that we collect ourselves. Now, a lot of those are internal, you know, confidential discussions. And there are inevitably lots of agencies who are discussing those now. But I think that's the space where tech leaders can really support because that is, stuff they've been doing for decades, right? You will have big billion dollar tech companies who have supported multinational businesses to improve their collection and analysis of their own data and to help them establish data policies, to help them understand how to improve their accountability around the collection and the use of that data to their clients, right? You know, when you collect information, and data from refugees do those refugees understand how that data is going to be used later who that data will be shared with i think for some programs yes for some services yes not consistently across the whole of the you know the realm of the services that humanitarian actors provide so that's probably not as edgy as some tech leaders would want to hear but maybe as simple as going back to basics and helping aid organizations better organize, better manage and better analyze the data that their programs generate.
0: As you were just talking, Sarah, we talked to Robert Trigwell and you mentioned uh, Kate Dodgson. I listened to that. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, It was phenomenal to, to get them both and as is you. But what was interesting there is he's at the UN's uh, International Organization for Migration and he really highlighted a problem You know, just focus on the problem approach rather than all the things you can do. So like, is there a problem you can maybe think about that you could call out? This would be great to just have your community work on. So I think
1: one of the problems is trying to convince aid organizations of the utility of sharing data. And I'm thinking particularly of organizations who provide direct services to individual human beings. And the services that they provide may be very specialized and addressing very sensitive issues like rape and sexual violence, recruitment into armed forces and groups where even reporting these issues in some of these environments is likely to garner increased attention or from non-state armed groups or state actors and security forces, but equally increase the vulnerability of the client who's reporting for care and for services. So aid organizations or the agencies that are delivering these services, have to tread a very careful line for how they provide and prioritize the provision of service delivery to these communities and to this particular population in a way that is within minimum standards and uh, agreed upon interagency ethics, and that are ultimately, we're only collecting information to help improve the outcomes for these individuals. Now, when What has happened in the past or the processes that I've been involved with in the past in trying to coordinate or streamline or systematize data collection and standardize data labels, the ways, the tools that we use to collect data so we can better aggregate you run into all sorts of operational challenges. So how do you anonymize individual data, but then ensure that you're not double counting individuals in, you know, X district. So if you're in South London, if you're in Croydon, and you have three different service providers who are operating there, and they all come together and wipe off the first and last names of all their client lists, and you aggregate them, how do you make sure you're not Double counting? How do you make sure you're collecting data that's consistent in terms of its integrity and its robustness across the three different agencies? So, when you get a data scientist explaining some of these challenges to a GBV service provider, the conversation doesn't go much further than that because the GBV service provider will say, Well, we're providing the highest quality of care that we can, and along the lines of, or against the model that we're, we've designed that we know works and delivers X, Y, and Z outcome for clients. And our priority is not you and your data and your and the aggregation of that data. Now, if you try and change that dynamic a little bit by looking internally within each agency to helping them look at the way in which their organizations themselves use the data that their programs create, right? Their programs create data by collecting either individual level or school level data or service level data in the communities in which they work. Now, data scientists can go in and help those organizations manage and structure that data a bit better, but also analyze it. Now, if I was a long time ago, if I was a GBV coordinator or program manager in eastern Sierra Leone... And someone came in and said, you know what, I've got a bit of software that will run in the background that you won't even see that will help produce an individualized risk assessment for every client that comes in. I can tell you on the basis of historic data and existing data, how vulnerable your client is to additional incidents of violence, additional exploitation or other things. So doing a bit of classification and a bit of predictive analytics. Would I have wanted that? Yeah. And frankly, if I were a client presenting for services and I was told that there is one agency that has the ability to provide more specific and more specialized care on the basis of deeper analysis versus another one, I'd probably go to the first one, to be honest. But those organizations have to understand the utility of that data and that needs to be demonstrated and that needs to be working. I mean, you can't just expect organizations to... Share their information that is particularly that's individualized with a coordinating body or with an oversight body or a UN agency that's trying to aggregate that. If they can't improve the quality of the care that they're already delivering, there needs to be a clearer linkage between the sharing and the structuring of their data and linking that to ultimately driving better outcomes and better services for the clients they're working with already. And that's not being, that's not yet being clearly articulated. I see a lot of really clever stuff, taking unstructured data from social media and pairing that with really structured data from the World Bank and from UNICEF Mix and you know DHS and lots of really interesting big data sets to do some really cool multi-dimensional predictive analysis. But you know what if you take that really cool processing power and, and analytical capability down to the individual level, not just the disaster level or the emergency level, but just down to an individual to say, hey, Mrs. Jones comes in and she presents with these services. Now, all of a sudden on the basis of the 10,000 cases you already have across the world, this is what we've seen as the patterns in cases like hers. And these are things you should watch out for. And it's not removing the human from that process, it's augmenting that human capability, right? We're back to the basic definition of some of this technology. It's there not to replace humans, it's there to augment their capacity. And that's where the potential is. But I will tell you that's gonna be a hard battle because the relationships between some of these organizations have been strained by decades of battles around data data collection and aggregation.
0: But how do we protect that data and then find a humanitarian vanguard to really solve big problems? So it's quite the um it's quite the tightrope and the prioritizing what you're just saying is critical. What's gonna come in and really
1: You're not gonna be able to force this. It's gonna have to be from the ground up. Maybe it's something like These aid organizations that possess the expertise and have decades and decades of uh, experience designing really clever and very technically sound interventions to support some of the most vulnerable populations within already vulnerable populations, they're the ones who are going to need to be front and center and part of this discussion. And then you'll need to also have a range of people who are bilingual in tech speak and aid speak who know them both and who have experience, firsthand experience of designing and delivering humanitarian programs and trying to, you know, facing the challenges of having equipment imported into a country when the airports and the ports are destroyed, trying to collect that equipment, trying to figure out a way to establish it, where to establish it, whom to speak to, whom to trust, um, which partners to work with, how do you make sure that you raise the money at the same time that you're trying to design these programs? You know, people who understand that and who can almost do that in their sleep also need to now become fluent in technology at the highest level. I will say there is a worry in my head. I'm not sure it's well-founded. It may not come to pass. But I do have a question in my head about the likelihood of and the manifestations of digital disruption to the humanitarian aid organization. I'd be very interested if aid organizations revealed that they were thinking about this. Because I reckon if you took the top 10 to 15 aid organizations, who are delivering life-saving assistance around the world. And we placed the responsibility on their shoulders to sort of be that vanguard of integrating artificial intelligence and machine learning into effectively into humanitarian operations. And they stalled on that task. Would you then see the sort of confluence of much smaller startup firms who are both sometimes for profit, but also not for profit, who develop a unique and discrete capability, sometimes more than one, but sometimes only one, and build an aid organization around them. And then all of a sudden you've got a different range of characters with a different understanding of the key principles and the ways in which humanitarian aid has been developed. And you could see a complete you know, revolution with a little r within the aid industry and of of how aid is distributed and how donor funds are distributed. You know, the increasing role of private sector is something that Kate and Rob spoke about in their interview as well, or at least in the framework, I think they mentioned it as well. But it's something that I think aid organizations need to really consider, um, because if they don't play this thought leadership role or take up this thought leadership role, it it may move on without them. There is that real risk, but I may be be too pessimistic.
0: As you were speaking, an example about a non-human example with oceans came to mind where perhaps that space will teach us a lot, and maybe humanitarian orgs can sort of piggyback on what's going on to protect oceans that's a bit of a a, maybe another conversation. I think some of the
1: use cases that don't involve human subjects, to use a research term, I think will probably be easier to pilot. I know that ICRC is doing some really interesting work with drones and artificial intelligence and infrared cameras to detect and remove explosive remnants of war. ICRC is in a different position when it comes to their Operational capacities and their sort of the, the freedom to fail factor that I spoke about because their funding sources and their sort of financing is, is slightly different to that of international or national NGOs. But it's really interesting because, in some ways, there is more space to fail because the risk to human individuals may be less. Or slightly different than if you were piloting a project related to child protection, for example, or health or education or uh, gender-based violence.
0: It's probably getting quite late for you in Amman. I was just wondering, before we wrap things up, any takeaways you'd like to share with our community? And especially if there's something you need, questions you may have, you want you know, answers to... Or, or whatever it is that you'd like to leave us with, we'd love to give you the story. Yeah, I Express- think that the the information
1: I am so keen on is trying to find these really exciting use cases that exist in Europe, in the United States, in you know Asia, in parts of Africa that can be tweaked and that are off the shelf and that could be redesigned to improve the accuracy and the efficiency of of service delivery. I think there's great potential there that has yet to be explored. I'm not sure that we need, you know, another hackathon with 50 brilliant minds trying to create yet another tool. That will always be helpful. But I think a lot of this work has been done in the last 10 years. And I'd be really interested to see what's been out there already What's um, had, you know, gone through various stages of sort of proof of concept and has been rolled out in multiple contexts. You know, I do know some of the work that an organization has been, a firm has been delivering for police services in Europe to improve support for survivors of domestic violence. I mean, those are the kind of use cases that we could be looking to, to adapt them through humanitarian context. And there's great potential there. So that's the kind of thing that I think somehow needs to be coming to the fore. And that's where these deep subject matter experts who are really, really at the vanguard of delivering life-saving critical assistance will be able to look at those use cases and be able to help translate those to their scenarios. And then takeaways, I feel like I'm a cynical idealist where if that's even a a possible thing. (laughs) And as a cynical idealist, I hold out great hope for the potential that these emerging capabilities can bring to bear on an industry that needs reform. We need to find different ways to solve or to understand the problems that we're solving and then to bring real world solutions to it, in part because the world has moved on, right? The world has definitely moved on and people get so much of their information now from Facebook and WhatsApp, right? They're not going to necessarily call and speak to the chatbot that UNHCR provides. So how do we deal with that? How do we use that as an opportunity and leverage that as an opportunity to provide better quality care? So we need to sort of, think differently and be idealistic, but also cynical in our, or realistic in our ambition and what we know works and leverage the experience that all of us have had over the last 10 or 20 years in delivering aid to channel that idealism in a really effective way to ultimately, ultimately
0: do our jobs
1: and deliver better outcomes for people that need it the most.
0: Indeed. Well, I love your cynical idealism, um, (laughs) wisdom, and thank you so much, Sarah Spencer, for bringing your voice to humanitarian AI today. That brings this edition of humanitarian AI today to a close.